You are listening to Books Are My People, a bi-weekly podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 21. My name is Jennifer Calagaris, and I am your host. I am recording on Friday, April 17th, what is supposedly the peak day for the coronavirus here in California. Thank you so much to everyone who wrote in with well wishes after episode 20. After speaking with two doctors now, they are both convinced that I did most likely have a false negative test. In any case, I'm at around week four and feeling so, so much better and on a bunch of inhalers that are making my life much more breathable. And yesterday was the first day that I did not need to take a three-hour nap to power through the day. So I am leaving my toddler life and returning to my life as a regular adult. I hope everyone listening is safe and healthy. We have been obviously hanging out at home. We did do a driveway Easter. The four of us sat by our front door in masks and my parents and my sister drove over in their cars and stayed in their cars for a visit. It was drizzling that day. Uh, It was sad, but at least it was something. My kids are both back in virtual school after two weeks of spring break, so it is nice to have a little bit more structure to our days. I wonder if anyone else is feeling this way. I've had a really hard time focusing on reading during all of this. I had such high hopes. It's been especially frustrating because reading is my go-to comfort activity, and I just have not been as into it. I just cannot focus. Um, So we've been doing some TV instead. We're now on season two of Killing Eve. I just love that show if you haven't seen it. Um, And I watched the most fantastic documentary on Netflix called The Best Worst Thing That Ever Happened. And it is all about the musical Merrily We Roll Along. So any Sondheim fans out there, it was absolutely fantastic with a ton of footage from the show's very brief stint on Broadway, including some audition footage and then a look at the original cast and where they are now. I highly recommend it if you are a fan of musical theater, or even if you're not. I was in that musical in high school, so it was extra fun to watch and hear all of those songs again. I have a huge mea culpa to offer after last episode when I mistakenly said that the author of The Rise and Fall of Charles Lindbergh was Steve Schenken, when in fact it was Candace Fleming. I had it right on my show notes, but I just wanted to clear that up for listeners. Steve Schenken is a fantastic author of children's books as well. We especially loved his book, King George, What Was His Problem?, which my kids read when they were deep into their Hamilton the Musical phase. I wanted to give a special shout out and thank you to listener Michelle, who contacted me and let me know that both Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C. are making their author talks available over the Zoom platform. So that is awesome to know. Michelle told me that she attended the talk with Julia Alvarez, who discussed her new novel, and I think that's awesome. So go check that out. I will leave a link to both of those um, in the show notes. 
As this is a book recommendation podcast, I'm obviously always recommending books here, but I thought maybe I'd take a second and recommend two of my own books if anyone was interested in some reading during the quarantine. I am horrible at self-promotion, so I am cringing as I'm doing this, just so you know. So first is Strays which is a young adult novel about a girl, Iris, with anger management issues, and she spends the summer rehabilitating aggressive dogs. And I think if you are a dog person and like reading about dogs, you would like this book. And the second is my short fiction collection, Unruly Creatures, which is filled with very weird stories, fairy tale reinterpolations, um, and I think fans of... Amy Bender or Margaret Atwood short fiction might like that. And I just got word from one of my publishers the other day that my books are now available on bookshop.org. And that is a newish site that supports indie bookstores. So sales on bookshop.org have risen 2000% during the quarantine, and they've been able to distribute over $400,000 back to independent bookstores. So there you go. Of course, in order to ensure that your local independent bookstore gets all of the profits, you can always purchase books directly through them. I've mentioned this before, but for the local listeners out there, Diesel Books offers delivery and shipping and curbside pickup options. Uh, So check in with your own local bookstore. Now on to some bookish news. acclaimed book last year, or maybe it came out in 2018. I can't remember. It's a story about friendship in Dublin. And Rooney is also the author of Conversations with Friends. Both Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer will be returning for Find Me, which is the sequel to the movie Call Me By Your Name. And if you haven't yet seen that movie or read the book, which is also titled Call Me By Your Name, I highly recommend both. Although I would suggest reading the book first. It is so beautifully written, and I thought the adaptation was just fantastic. So it seems like my statistics today seem to involve the number 2000. First, it was bookshop.org sales rising by 2000%. And now the picture book, I Don't Want to Wash My Hands by Tony Ross has also risen by, you guessed it, 2000%. I guess there are a lot of parents out there trying to convince their children to wash their hands. Barnes & Noble has temporarily closed over 400 of their 627 stores, which is around 65% of their stores, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm sure most of those employees have been laid off so that they can apply for unemployment. But I'm so curious which of their bookstores are open and are people going to them? Let me know if you happen to live near an open Barnes & Noble bookstore. So when the quarantine and all of the libraries began closing, book enthusiasts were all abuzz about this thing online called the National Emergency Library, which announced that it was opening up 1.4 million books to unlimited checkouts. 
readers would still get to read their books without having access to their local library. So I saw the National Emergency Library appear on so many lists of things to do while quarantined and on a ton of sites for book lovers. And it sounds great, right? Free books. Who doesn't love free books? However, Authors are not so happy about the arrangement because to some it feels like it's just an excuse to turn a blind eye to copyright laws. The site does contain many titles that are already in the public domain, so that's okay, but not all of their books are. So Twitter was soon full of some harsh criticism from authors, and I just wanted to share a couple of them with you today. So this one is from Alexander Chi who said, as a reminder, there is no author bailout, booksellers bailout, or publisher bailout. The Internet Archive's emergency copyrights grab endangers many already in terrible danger. And next is N.K. Jemison, who said, there really ought to be a special hell for people who steal from artists who already have to struggle to get by in this capitalistic hell. So there's a little bit more to her tweet, but there was an expletive. So I left it out just in case you're listening to the podcast with your children. You're welcome. So I think the lesson to be learned here is that even if your local library is closed, which is the situation for, I think, most, if not all of us, you can still and you should check out books from your local library digitally because they are not infringing on any copyright laws. Apps like Libby digitally connect readers with your local library. I use Libby liberally, say that 10 times fast. And with just a click, you can have a book sent to your Kindle or computer or phone or whatever device you like to use. Now, on to the books. I am starting today's recommendation with The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel, which falls under literary fiction. She kind of tends to straddle genres, but for this book, that's where I think I place it. I was so excited when I read that she was coming out with another novel. I was a huge fan of her most popular novel, Station Eleven, which is about a pandemic, if you're looking for a pandemic read. And it's also being developed into a TV series that I think isn't coming out until the fall, but I'm not sure. Um, Anyhow, I just, I love her writing style and The Glass Hotel is actually her fifth book. So this new book is not at all about a pandemic, but the backdrop instead is the exposure of a Ponzi scheme and a host of players who are a part of it, either as aggressors or victims, or more interestingly, how they kind of fall in between those two labels. So I've already given you the most basic plot points. And this is one of those books where it's really hard to talk about the plot because it's not so much about how the plot unfolds as it is about the characters. As a writer with a short fiction background, I am particularly interested in form. And this book shies away from a traditional linear plot. And instead we get more of a kaleidoscope of really strong voices. There's a brother-sister duo who are both for a time connected to the Ponzi scheme mastermind, Daniel Alkaitis. We read about Leon Previn, who, fun fact, was a character in Station Eleven. And there's even a Greek chorus of office workers who work on, I think it was the 16th, 
maybe the 17th floor where Al-Qaeda's ran his Ponzi scheme. The narrative moves forward and then jolts back in time in a very nonlinear fashion, but never in a confusing way. It's a novel about corruption and greed. It's about dreams and what it means to succeed. It's a novel about chance meetings and random intersections that happen in life. There are a lot of music references uh, through one of the characters, and the novel itself begins in 1999, which was a fun launching pad, um, because it's sort of a land that time forgot before cell phones and before the internet, and it was just fun to be in that space. I think of that time very nostalgically um, before the internet and devices uh, took over our lives. So again, that is The Glass Hotel by Emily St. John Mandel. My next pick is Medieval Bodies, Life and Death in the Middle Ages by Jack Hartnell. This is a nonfiction book, so leave it to me to get sucked into a book with this sort of title during a pandemic, but it happened and I absolutely love this book. It took me right back to that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where people are being asked to bring out the dead. This book is exactly what the title implies. The author is an art historian and he talks about the time period lasting from 300 to 1500 AD, which we of course know as the Middle Ages. He explores this time period through his medium, art, including detailed tapestry and illuminated manuscripts, but also he looks at medical textbooks and recorded histories from doctors at the time. His exploration of the Middle Ages includes both Europe and the Middle East, and the vessel that he uses to explore this grim topic is the body. So chapters are titled after specific body parts. Uh, but include a cacophony of ideas on each body part, including theory and religion and poetry and biology. It was totally fascinating to see culturally how people in the Middle Ages viewed bodies. And I couldn't help but think, okay, so things that were par for the course back then seem totally barbaric to the reader in 2020, but it also made me wonder about how future generations are going to look back at some of our practices and think that we were barbaric. This is a book that contains gorgeous illustrations to go along with the text, and I think anyone interested in this particular time period or any art historians out there or any fans of Mary Roach would be interested in reading this book. And again, that was Medieval Bodies, Life, Death, and Art in the Middle Ages by Jack Hartnell. My next pick is officially a young adult novel, but I am a 43-year-old woman and I loved it, so away with all these restrictive labels, I say. It is called We Used to Be Friends and it's by Amy Spaulding. Amy Spaulding is most well-known for her novel, The Summer of Jordi Perez, which I have yet to read. But We Used to Be Friends is about two female best friends, James, who's a bit of an introvert, and Kat, who is a friend to all. They're both seniors in high school, and they've been best friends since kindergarten. And it's in their last year of school together that their friendship basically loses its foundation and falls apart. 
The book is told in alternating chapters between James and Kat's point of view, but it's also told in different moments during senior year and bounces back and forth between the now of the story, which is the very end of their senior year, and various touchstone moments that have affected the two girls' friendship. James' narrative moves backwards in time, and Kat's moves forward, and I'm making it sound like it's complicated, and it's really not. One thing that I loved about this book is that it's essentially a breakup novel, but instead of being the breakup of a romantic relationship, it's about the breakup of a deep friendship. I feel like there's so many, especially in the young adult novel genre, um, so many books that explore romantic breakups, but I found this idea of a friendship breakup to be so moving and relevant, especially to female relationships. And I think it's not a topic that's explored often enough in literature. As a reader, you really feel for both of these young women as they mourn the loss of their friendship, and we watch them both grieve at the sadness of not only the end of their childhood as they move on to college, but the end of this friendship that has been a part of their lives for so long. And again, it is called We Used to Be Friends by Amy Spaulding. So last episode, I only had three books to tell you about when I usually have five. And this week, you're getting four. So I think I'm working my way back up to five. I need my reading mojo back. My last pick for today is a suspense novel, and it is called The Herd by Andrea Bartz. This is about an exclusive workplace for women in New York called The Herd. So I'm just going to describe to you what the sign looks like because it's sort of telling for the novel itself. So it's a big H, big E, big R, little D. Get it? It has the word her in it. You have to apply to be a member and it's run by Eleanor Walsh who wants women to have a safe space to work. It feels very Gwyneth Paltrow goop-like in many ways. The space is magazine perfect and young accomplished women flock to be a part of the herd. So Katie has just arrived in New York from the Midwest where she has spent the last year with some secrets about her past and her adopted sister Hannah currently works at the herd as Eleanor's publicist. But all is not perfect at the herd. There are some misogynistic herd haters who threaten and malign and spray paint some pretty nasty language on the walls of the organization. A few days later, Eleanor, the head of the company, is slated to make a big announcement about her future plans for the herd. But before she can do this, she goes missing and no one is sure who is to blame or where she is. So we find out there are certainly lots of ghosts in all of Eleanor's many closets, as we come to find out, but Eleanor isn't the only character hiding big secrets. I think if you like soap operas and suspense, this book is definitely a marriage of the two. And again, that is called The Herd by Andrea Bartz. I will put all of these books with links to purchase them in the show notes. And next up for me is the novel Pretend I'm Dead, a novel by Jen Began, and I have started this book and I am loving it so much. So I'm sure you will hear more about it next episode. If you like what you're listening to, please leave a rating in iTunes. It helps other listeners find my podcast and I'll be back in two weeks. And I hope you all have a wonderfully bookish week. Stay healthy.